0: Well the title of this morning's message is Sons of God, Especially Through Suffering. Now I bet you're really excited about that, aren't you? (laughs) The last time I ministered, we looked at our adoption as sons of God, and I want to continue in that same vein this morning. We are going to look briefly again at our position as a son of God, and then how our position enables us to be victorious especially through suffering. The last time we looked at a portion of Romans chapter 8, verse 14 through 17a, and I want you to see it again, because this is our foundation for what's coming next. And it says this, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are sons of God. And ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs. So these scriptures tell us that we are all sons of God and heirs of God. We have an equal inheritance in Christ and with Christ. This is what the Apostle Paul says just prior to discussing the subject of suffering. He thought, before I tell you about the hard stuff, I need to tell you about the good stuff. (laughs) I need you to know who you are before you go into the battle because he wants you to come out on the other side victorious. So we have all been adopted into the position of son by God himself. Our Heavenly Father has put us in charge of his estate here on earth through the indwelling Holy Spirit, irrespective of gender, ethnicity, economic class, or age. It doesn't matter if you're male or female, you're a son. It doesn't matter if you're three and you've just accepted Jesus Christ or you're 73 and you've just accepted Jesus Christ. You have been made a son, seated at the right hand of the Father in Christ Jesus. So even little children can lay hands on the sick and see them recover. And actually, they're usually better at it because they're not expecting anything other than Jesus to show up. The faith of a child. So all believers are sons. And we're not just supernaturally born again sons, but we're adopted. And that was his point. We have the spirit that has caused us to be placed as a son. One of the main reasons someone was adopted as a son was so that they would rule and reign in their father's place. That is our position on this earth, to rule and reign the same way Jesus did when he was here. At the time that the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Romans, adoption was the preferred means of placing someone in a position to acquire a specific governmental seat. It was a way to ensure a continuance of a certain governmental authority, and so it is with us. We have been seated in Christ's governmental seat in heaven in order to rule with and through Him on this earth. Ephesians 2.6 says, He hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Our Father has placed us in the seat above all principalities and powers in Christ Jesus. We have true governmental authority. Also an adopted son was chosen for the specific purpose of providing an heir for an already present inheritance. That's important. An already present inheritance. He was going to step into and take control of everything that the father had. An adopted son was someone who would receive everything that belonged to the father. The adopted son would receive his father's name, his power, his, his wealth, and his influence. Absolutely everything. And everything is ours through Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians 3.21-23 says, So then, let no one glory in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, because they were fighting over who was their favorite. (laughs) But he goes on and says, Or the world, or life, or death, or things present, or things about to be. All are yours, and ye are Christ's, and Christ is God's. And lastly, we saw that being an adopted son was actually better than just being a natural born son, because an adopted son could not be disowned, could not be sold into slavery, and could not be killed by his father. An adopted son's position provided him with protection and security. Hebrews 13.5b says this, for he, God, has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now this is actually a quote from several different places in the Old Testament, but God has not changed. His heart for us never changes. He's saying, you can depend on me, you can trust in me, and you can rest in me. I will never, no, not ever, by any means, nor for any reason, leave you, let loose of you, desert you, or desist in holding on to you in any way. And that's just what the word never means. (laughs) I will never, not ever, by any means, for any reasons, leave you, abandon you, let loose of you, or desist in holding on to you. Have you ever seen the mama in the grocery store holding on to the baby and she's dragging that kid and he's fighting every step of the way? That's our daddy. (laughs) he is not going to let loose of us no matter if we fuss about it or not and then he goes on and he says or forsake you to forsake means to abandon to be absent from you or to leave you behind I like that picture because when mom and dad or someone is walking with a child and they stumble and fall well they don't keep walking and leave the child behind (laughs) not if they're good parents (laughs) or our daddy is a good parent when we stumble and fall he doesn't leave us there he comes and he picks us up that is God's heart for us and that's what we need to know when we know especially that we're going through something that's difficult or we're facing something difficult our father wants us to be secure in his love his approval his acceptance and his faithfulness Through Christ we have protection and security. The Apostle Paul also uses the picture of Roman adoption to paint the picture of what our Heavenly Father has always had in mind for us. Not just as dearly loved children who have no authority, but as adopted sons who rule and reign through the power of the Holy Spirit. Through Christ Jesus and His finished work, our Father has given us Himself and His kingdom. Everything he is and everything he has become ours through Christ Jesus. In Luke chapter 12, verse 32, it says this, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. What kingdom? He wasn't talking about the kingdom of Israel. He was talking about the kingdom of heaven. And not just later when we unzip our earth suit and step into heaven, but he's talking about here and now. Jesus said that his Father wants heaven to come to earth. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth the exact same way it is in heaven. And the kingdom came through Jesus Christ. The kingdom is here by the power of the Holy Spirit. As sons of God, we have been placed in a position of power and authority to bring the government of heaven into earth. We have the right to rule and reign in this life here and now. (laughs) But ruling and reigning isn't something we do on our own. It is something we do by the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. Now, we're going to take a stroll through most of the rest of chapter 8 of Romans, uh, not all of it, because it's uh, like a big elephant. <laughs> when I started looking at the scriptures, like, where do you want me to get to, God? <laughs> and Lord, this is a gigantic passage, and uh, it was sort of like, how do I take an elephant and serve him for dinner? Well, we're just going to do it one bite at a time. <laughs> we might not get them all eaten, but we'll, we'll get most of it. Romans 8, 17 says this, and if children then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him that we may also be glorified together. Now, the last time we looked at Romans 8, 14 through 17, I left the last part off. The part that says, if so be that we suffer with him that we may also be glorified together. And I did that because this is a transitional thought. He has just gone through this whole thing about how powerful we are, what Christ has done for us. When our father puts us into Christ, we have his power, his authority, his name, his spirit, his love, his peace, his joy. He's already told us all of this. In fact, all of chapter 8 is really about the power of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life. You don't have to listen to your flesh. By the power of the Holy Spirit, you can walk in victory. By the power of the Holy Spirit, everything is accomplished. That is his point through all of chapter 8. But then he gets to this suffering thing. (laughs) And nobody's really in a big hurry to suffer. Part of this uh, where it says, so be that we suffer with him, that can sound as if it's a prerequisite. You must suffer so that you will be glorified with him. Well, that's not what it's actually talking about. He's transitioning into the hard things that have faced the church. In America, we are very blessed. But all around the world, people are losing their lives for the name of Jesus Christ. There's a real persecution. Now, do we have persecution here in America? Yeah. Try to say Jesus on national TV and they get all upset. You can use the name of God, but not the name of Jesus. <laughs> they have a real problem. So there is persecution. And there is even often persecution within your own families. And he knew, he knew that they needed to know who they were in order to go through whatever persecution they faced. Victoriously. So it's not a prerequisite. It's just a fact of life. (laughs) Spiritually speaking, God counts us as already having been glorified with Christ. In Ephesians 2, verses 4 through 6, it says this But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, he loved us even when we were dead in sins. With his great love, wherewith he loved us even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ. What you hear a lot in the scripture is the word together. <laughs> That's what I like about it, we are quickened together, we are raised together, and we are currently seated together in Christ at the right hand of the Father. So the reality is, he didn't do anything without us inside of him. And guess what? We can't do anything without him inside of us. We were in him when he died, we were in him when he was buried, we were in him when he was raised, and we were in him when he was seated at the right hand of the Father. We are together in Christ. Here on this earth, I can't do anything without Jesus wherever I go, there he is. (laughs) Okay, that's the point. And what he's going to get into is when we go through hard things, there is a glory. The Christ inside shows through. There is a difference between people who have put their trust in Jesus Christ and those who haven't. I don't know if you were aware, but Supposedly, we were supposed to all be raptured yesterday. <laughs> that was the latest thing, is that Jesus was coming back yesterday, you know? But that kind of prediction which we know is silly because nobody knows the day or the hour when Christ will return. It frightens people. They think the end of the world, oh my. Some people actually turn to Christ and get saved. We have a family member who the last big scare, and that's what it is. It's fear-based. Be afraid. Be afraid. Be afraid. Jesus is coming. No, don't be afraid. (laughs) Come to Jesus. No, no, No reason to be afraid when Jesus returns. And so there is a difference. The glory of Christ in us when we are going through or facing something that's hard or even something that's scary, there is a big difference. I'm reminded of uh, David's sister-in-law, Carmen, when she was going through her battle with cancer. In the hospital, she is praising the Lord. She is worshiping Jesus. She is glorifying Him. His power and love and mercy and goodness in her was seen by everybody around. That is what it means to be glorified with Christ. That in the midst of something that we're going through, Jesus is visible. Now, she lost her battle, but praise God, she won the war. (laughs) She didn't lose by going home to heaven. Now she's truly glorified physically. So many scholars believe that this particular scripture, so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified with him, is twofold. He is talking about the glory of Jesus in us being seen in the midst of hardness. And he's also talking about whatever it is we go through on this earth, this is nothing compared to the glory we have in him and with him in heaven later on. So it is both. In uh, Romans 8:17, I have it in the APV version. And it says this, And if children also heirs, heirs indeed of God, but joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer together, that also we should be glorified together. When it says, if indeed, it means perhaps. This isn't an automatic thing. Suffering is your lot in life. Sign up for suffering. No, that's not his point. (laughs) He says, if you suffer, you suffer together with Christ. If you suffer, there is going to be glory with Christ. We cannot suffer apart from Christ. When we suffer, he suffers too. It is that togetherness. Christ is not separated from us in our suffering. And suffering is not a removal of our position in Christ. It's not a separation of our togetherness with Christ. That is his point. That's where he's leading in this conversation in in Romans, is that he's going to get to nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That's where he's headed. Because in Jewish thinking, the blessing and the cursing, if something bad happens in your life or something hard happens, well, you must be in sin. God must be mad at you. God must have left you. That kind of thinking was very prevalent. And in the church today, it's also very prevalent. Now, I do have to have a side note and say, there is stupid stuff that happens. (laughs) We can make stupid decisions and we have consequences for stupid decisions, but it's never God's punishment. It's never God's wrath just because we're stupid. Remember, he said, I will never leave you behind. You fall down, he's not leaving you. (laughs) And the word him is not in the original. Many translations say those who suffer with him, him is not there. It actually means to suffer together. It doesn't mean something we do for him. It means it's something that we're going through, he goes through it with us. Suffering is not God's way of showing his disapproval of our behavior. Suffering is a part of living in a fallen world. God is not interested in ever withdrawing his presence, his power, or his approval of us, especially in the midst of suffering. In Psalms 34, verses 18 and 19 say this, The Lord is close to the brokenhearted, and he delivers those whose spirit has been crushed. A righteous person will have many troubles, but the Lord will deliver him from them all. Our father's heart is always to deliver us from them all. (laughs) And that's what we have to keep in mind. God never promised there would be nothing hard. He never promises that. But he says, whatever we do, we do together. Whatever we go through, we go through together. And his point of view is keep your eye on the Deliver them from them all. (laughs) That's his heart. We may go through, but we are not going to live in the hard place. He's come to take us through. I looked up the word glorify. What does it mean to glorify? So I looked it up in the helps word lexicon. And it says this. The Greek word for glorify is cognate. It means viewed in high personal esteem, befitting great intrinsic worth perceived as in a state or condition of acknowledged glory because recognized as glorious. Who recognizes us as glorious? Our Father does. Because we are one with Jesus Christ in our spirit, in the real us, we have our Father's approval of who we are. Nothing can take Jesus out of us or us out of Jesus. In Jesus, there really is nothing at all wrong with who we are. We have our true fathers, high personal esteem of us. Now sometimes that falls on our ear, and we're like, "God thinks highly of me." Well, he thought so highly of you, He sent His son. This is about worth, not about value in and of ourself. No. He has placed the value of Christ on us. We have our fathers. Approval. Our Father has placed His value on us by sending us Jesus Christ. So suffering is not an indication of our Father's disapproval. And as we will see shortly in the scripture, it's just part of living in a fallen world. The believers in Rome needed to understand that even in the midst of great persecution, our Father's approval stands immovable and forever, regardless of our outward circumstances if hard things come and you think oh God is mad at me we start looking at ourself. Oh, what did I do to make this happen like I say bad circumstances can come from stupid decisions okay <laughs> but even in that he never leaves us behind he has placed the value of Christ on us he says that we have intrinsic value to him he finds us in Christ to be glorious. So circumstances are never valid indicators of God's approval or disapproval. Some would say, well, if you're wealthy, God likes you. <laughs> and if you're poor, God must not. Not true, not true at all. Outer circumstances are not an indicator of God's approval of us or his disapproval of us. The Roman believers needed to know that sometimes persecution comes because you're doing things right. <laughs> Not because you're doing things wrong. The word is very clear that persecution comes for the word's sake. Satan's always looking to steal the word, the truth of who Jesus Christ is out of our hearts. So all, a lot of times he will stir up other people against you so that you will cease and desist in speaking the name of Jesus. Romans 8.18 says this, for I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. That is the Jesus Christ in us. And that's what Paul wanted his uh, audience to understand. The rest of the world would say, why would you follow Jesus when it's that hard? We could look at people around the world who are, you know, who are losing their heads for the name of Jesus and go, why not, why not just deny him? Really, what's the point? but they know the truth of who Jesus is. They know the truth that there is no other way. He wanted his readers to understand hard things are coming. You're gonna go through hard things, but it's not an indication of God's disapproval. Don't back away from the truth because you come up against resistance. Don't back away from the Holy Spirit because you're gonna come up against resistance. All of chapter eight is about the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. That was very controversial, that God would come to live inside of man. But he says, don't back away. The glory that Christ in you is a reality worth dying for. And he told them, our life is not just about here and now. This life is a forever eternity. And anything we go through in here is nothing compared to what awaits us. Verse 19 says this, for the earnest expectation of the creature, which is creation as a whole, waited for the manifestation of the sons of God. There is a partial fulfillment and there is a full fulfillment. The partial fulfillment is we have the Holy Spirit in us. We can rule and reign. we can speak to storms. We can speak to our bodies. We have power to release our faith with our words. That is something a king does. And we have been placed at the right hand of the father where we can speak to things and release the kingdom. We have the right to rule and reign. Why were the hurricanes not as bad as they were predicted to be? Because there was a whole bunch of Christians praying. There was a whole bunch of Christians saying, no, we're not gonna allow this. God didn't bring hurricanes. That's the whole thing. He says, when bad things come, it's not God who brings bad things. You live in a fallen world. Stand against those things. You have power and authority. And that's why he says the manifestation of the sons of God. There will come a day when who we are, when all of our glory is going to be visible. God's going to rebirth the entire earth. And who we are will be fully manifested. In the meantime, we are earthen vessels with a treasure inside and we can manifest the kingdom of heaven here and now. All of creation has already been reconciled back to God through the cross of Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 1 verses 19 and 20 say this. For it pleased the Father that in him, Jesus, should all fullness dwell and having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things back to himself. By him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. The blood of Jesus was sufficient for all of the curse to be reversed. And as sons of God, we can speak to creation, we can speak to our bodies, we can speak to demonic entities, we can speak to situations and we can tell them to come into alignment with the finished work of the cross because this creation has already been reconciled. That's why we have the right to manifest the power of God the same way Jesus does. Now we may not be very good at it at times, (laughs) but it's something we grow in, grow in our faith like little children that when we lay hands on the sick, they do recover. When we speak to the storms, they do dissolve. It's a matter of releasing our faith, but we have the right to rule and reign. We have the right because we have been placed in Christ as a son for the express purpose of ruling and reigning. The scripture says that even creation is waiting in expected anticipation for the manifestation of the sons of God. Creation wants to cooperate with us. See, this will help our faith. When I realize your body wants to listen. When I say sickness, I command you to stop. Disease, I command you to cease. When we believe not only is Jesus on our side, not only is the Holy Spirit on our side, but your body is on your side. Creation wants to cooperate with the power of God because it's already been reconciled. It wants to step into its full manifestation. In Romans 8:20, it says this, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. God foresaw that the new heavens and the new earth were on the way, that there would be no more curse, just like for us, there's no more curse. We can walk in that truth. Romans 8.22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. All these hurricanes and weather changes and all of that, people are like, get ready for the end. Get ready for the end. No, get ready for the birth. Get ready for the birth. He says, as the time draws near, there'll be more and more birth pangs. Not death threatenings, <laughs> birth pains. The new creation is going to come. Christ will return. 823 says this, for not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit. Love that, first fruits. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we can walk as Jesus walked. We can do the things he did, be led by the spirit. Not of our own volition, being led by the Spirit. He says, What you have is only first fruits. He says, A little dabble do you until the rest of it gets here. <laughs> it's the first fruits. <laughs> he says, There's a fullness coming that we can't, haven't even begun to explore. I like that. We have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. That's the fullness of our adoption. That's the fullness of our salvation is that we get brand new bodies. We and the entire creation are waiting for the fullness of salvation. God has already reconciled all things back to himself, including the earth, but we haven't yet experienced all that there is. But there is a time coming when what God has accomplished through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ will become completely visible. Both our natural bodies and this physical earth will be born again from the dead. There will be a day when our bodies stop arguing with us. (laughs) And our bodies will be in complete alignment with the finished work of Jesus Christ. Paul's point here is that there is suffering for believers due to the fact that we live in an unregenerated world with unregenerated people. So there will be persecution. There will be loss. There will be challenges. There will be hard things. There will be things we don't completely understand until we get to heaven. But his point is this. Don't let those things tell you who you are. Don't let those things tell you what your father is really like. Don't let those circumstances rob you of the truth of who God says we are. We are his dearly loved children. And instead of listening to circumstances or naysayers, let the Holy Spirit remind you of who you really are. You are sons of God. Now, it may not sound like it, but the Apostle Paul is actually bringing a message of great hope. It is the message of don't quit, don't give up. Know who you are, know who lives inside of you, know who's on your side. God himself is for you. God himself has high esteem and value on you. Know and understand that the finished work of the cross is truly finished, and one day we will see it in its entirety. But in the meantime, Stay in hope and stay in prayer. Not the world's idea of hope and prayer, but biblical hope and Holy Spirit prayer. In verses 24 and 25 of Romans 8, it says this. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Biblical hope is absolute complete confidence that something good is waiting for me. It's very closely related to faith. It's different from faith. Faith says, I possess it now. Hope says, I possess it in the future. I know where it is. (laughs) It's real. It exists. It's like heaven. We talk about the hope of heaven. Well, I hope I go to heaven. Maybe yes, maybe no. Oh, no, no, no. We are sons and daughters of the Most High God. <laughs> we are right now seated in heavenly places. We are at two places at once, just like Jesus. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, but yet he lives inside of us. We are here on earth, but yet we are inside Jesus at the right hand of the Father. We are two places at once. How does he do that? I have no idea. But it's true. So I don't hope, maybe yes, maybe no, I'll go to heaven. I'm already seated there, okay? So I know a real thing exists, a present reality of an inheritance is already mine. It's at the right hand of the Father, and that's where I am. I'm already there. I'm going to walk physically into that someday, but the reality of it, the truth of it, that it exists right now is mine. Heaven is mine. I'm not experiencing it right now. And that's the difference between biblical hope and natural hope. The scripture here says that we are saved by hope. He's not talking about our justification before God. The fact that we have been declared righteous by Jesus. To be saved by hope means to be kept, preserved, upheld, and sustained in the midst of trials, tribulations, and challenges. It's referring to our salvation package Because we are saved by the blood of Jesus. So when we see this, we go, what do you mean I'm saved by hope? We bring the truth of of what Jesus has done into our life. It's the reality that we know is there and we're going to walk into. Sometimes in the midst of suffering, we can't see beyond our own pain, our own darkness, or our own suffering. Sometimes suffering can become all-encompassing and completely overwhelming. Suffering can become a place of great despair. But when we look beyond our circumstances and beyond our sorrow and beyond our grief and beyond ourselves, and we look to Jesus and his finished work, hope comes. The reality, the truth, the understanding that what I need exists right now. And I'm going to walk into it. It is the confident expectation of good. We don't hope for bad things. The word here negates the fact that you can hope for bad things. That's dread. Hope is only for that which is good. Hope is only for that which which comes from God. Hope is actually a grace. It is a gift. Because when we're in a hard place, when we can't see beyond the right here and the right now, we need to be able to take our eyes off of the present and see what already exists in the spiritual realm. We need to remember that there is a good thing coming for me. My Father only prepares good things for me. It is His gift in the midst of darkness. When our natural eyes can't see beyond where we are, our spiritual eyes can. Romans 8.25 says this, But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. I always think of patience as... Agonizing, (laughs) oh, I gotta wait, oh, I hate waiting. (laughs) That's not biblical patience. (laughs) Biblical patience is cheerful endurance. Cheerful, (laughs) not agonizing, cheerful, cheerful endurance. And to wait, I love the word wait, for In English, it's one little tiny word, but in the Greek, it's a whole bunch of words all squished together. It means, away from near, from receive. Which means, to receive from some source, away from near, to receive. Now, it sounds kind of confusing, but if you think about it, it means, I'm receiving right now what I need, but it's over here. You see, if I know my inheritance is a present reality, and I know it's just a matter of time before I walk into it, can I wait cheerfully? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's his point. When what we have in Christ becomes so real, when we are so confident of our Father's goodness, when we don't have it in hand, we can wait cheerfully knowing it's just a matter of time. The Lord, when I was thinking about this, I said, give me a good picture. And he gave me this picture. There's a child who is in need of a heart transplant. So that child's name is placed on a list. That child needs a heart. So now the parents have to wait for someone to call them and tell them that there is a heart available what you find is they're in what they call natural hope. Oh, because they know the cost of a human heart. That's hard. I'm hoping somebody else's child will die so my child can have a heart. So it's very very difficult. But they don't wait with cheerful endurance, do they? They're praying. <laughs> they're pleading and they're begging. That's normally the way it goes because only God can provide this. But they're not certain if a heart will become available in time to save their child. That's natural hope. Biblical hope is when they get the call, the heart is here, it's a match, and it's here at the hospital waiting for you. There's a waiting between Because sometimes it's on the other side of the United States. They have to get on a plane and go. That time between hearing it's here, it's waiting for you, come and get it, that's biblical hope. I've received it. I know it's right there, and I'm going to go and get it. That's biblical hope. When we can wait, we can receive from some source, God, a ways off. And then we can Wait cheerfully. We can be patient because we know we have what we've been waiting for. It may not be in my hand, but it's just as real as if it was. That's biblical hope. In verse 26, the Apostle Paul marries the concept of hope to prayer. He says, likewise, which means in the same manner. Likewise, the Spirit helps our weaknesses, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes. For us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for saints according to the will of God. When he says likewise the Spirit, he's referring to the fact that all through chapter 8, it is the Spirit that does it all. It is the Spirit who gives us life. It is the Spirit who helps us conquer the flesh. It is the Spirit who gives us hope. It is the Spirit who does all of the work. And then he says... Just so you know, you don't have to work really hard at this either. <laughs> Praying is a gift of the Holy Spirit too. Holy Spirit-led prayer. Now, in within this, this particular kind of prayer that he's talking about, it's talking about the kind of prayer that happens when you're overcome by something. It's the kind of prayer when you haven't any words. Probably you have only tears. It is when, when you come to God and you can't think of the right things to pray. You know, recently with the hurricanes and all the flooding, you're watching to going, oh, Jesus, oh, Jesus. Help them, Jesus. You know how ineffective that feels? <laughs> I don't know what to pray. And he goes on and he says this what to pray thing because it says we do not know how we ought to pray. It means as is necessary. In other words, he's saying it is not up to us to figure out how to pray the right thing to get the job done. The Holy Spirit will help us to pray. In other words, he takes the desire of our heart. He doesn't do our praying for us, okay? That is the other, if you go, off kilter here that I don't have to pray about anything. The Holy Spirit will pray for me. No, <laughs> this he helps us. He comes along and helps us. Okay, he helps us. So sometimes when we come to God, when something is so big, like all the flooding and the hurricanes and the fires, I don't know what everybody needs. My prayers feel pitiful. <laughs> Cause all I can think is Jesus help, Jesus help. What the Holy Spirit does is he takes my Jesus help and he actually makes it something Jesus can work with. (laughs) He in us communicates to the Father the appropriate prayer that help actually goes. That God shows up at the fire, God shows up in the flooding, God shows up in the midst of hardship, God shows up because most of the time, I don't know the exact thing to pray. I don't know who's crying out for God to help them. I don't know, but the Holy Spirit knows. So the Holy Spirit can lead us in praying in English because there's praying in the Spirit, there's praying in English, Is both. I learned to pray by the power of the Holy Spirit in English before I ever understood praying by the power of the Holy Spirit in another language. Years ago, I was in a little Nazarene church and they would call on people to ask them to pray. They would call on me, it's like, oh no, no. I don't wanna pray in front of people, no. it was. Jesus, help! For something as simple as praying. So the Holy Spirit would help me pray. I would completely lean on the Holy Spirit. I don't have a clue how to pray, God. I don't have a clue what to say. But the Holy Spirit would always pray through me. People would come up to me later and go, wow, what a prayer. And I was like, Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> what did I say? Because <laughs> it was by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit knows exactly what to pray. When we're suffering, we do not know what to pray. Sometimes it's just help. Do, do something, Jesus. But the Holy Spirit in us knows exactly what we need to pray. I love the fact that it says, we do not know what we should pray as we ought, and that it actually means as is necessary. We do not know how to pray as is necessary. That connotation says that there is a way to pray to make things happen. There's a way to pray to move heaven into this earth, and we can do that by the power of the Holy Spirit. The word help us is a great word, again. So much bigger than than what our English is, and it's extremely important because it conveys the idea of real partnership, remember that togetherness, (laughs) and cooperation, and paints the picture of two individuals working together to get a job done. The Greek word translated helpeth is actually a compound word of three Greek words. The first one is sun, it looks like sun. And it means to do something in conjunction with somebody else. The second word is anti, which means against. And lambano, which means to take or to receive. When these three words are joined together, it's a brand new word. (laughs) Sun-anti-lambano. Means to take hold of something with someone else. Gripping it together as tightly as possible. And throwing your combined weight against it to move it out of the way. How much weight does the Holy Spirit have? (laughs) How much weight does the Holy Spirit have? He says, I'm taking all of my power and all of my strength and I'll join it with your puny little power and strength. (laughs) And together we can move heaven and earth. So this tells us that the Holy Spirit bears the responsibility for our infirmities, our weakness. Throughout the chapter eight, the Apostle Paul is referring to overcoming our flesh. (laughs) Whatever our weakness is, he says, praying by the power of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit takes his power with us and helps us to overcome that weakness in our life. Becoming one with us in the task of removing every obstacle. In the midst of our weaknesses, when we are inadequate to get the job done, the Holy Spirit comes and says, let me grab hold of that hindrance with you. And you and I together will push against it together until it is moved completely out of the way. In the midst of suffering, big or small, we must remember that we are never alone, that we are never without resources, that we are never without hope, and we are never without help. Our Heavenly Father loves us. He has placed us as sons of God through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit by making us one together with the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have our very own permanent prayer partner inside, who will help us to get whatever job, whatever necessity comes into our life. He says, together we can overcome, together we can go through, together we can conquer, together we can bring the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ into a place of visibility. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all three at work in us and with us and for us to bring us through whatever suffering, whatever hardship, gloriously and victoriously. The Apostle Paul later in Romans says these two things, which I think is very fitting. Romans 12, 12 says this, rejoicing in hope. What is hope? Knowing I have it waiting for me. It's a present reality. Whatever I have need of, my Father has already provided it. It's just a matter of time. Patient, cheerfully enduring in tribulation continuing instant in prayer. That's the keys to overcoming and walking through hard things victoriously. And then Romans fifteen thirteen, he prays for them. Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that ye may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. It is all about our relationship with God. God, our Father, who is not mad at us. God, our Father, who has placed the value of Christ's life on us. The God who loves us so much that he thought we were worth dying for. And then to go ahead and take up residence in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And with him, he says, there's nothing we can't conquer. There's nothing that we can't come through gloriously and victoriously. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you for your word. Father, nobody wants to sign up for suffering. (laughs) But Father God, we know that whatever we face in this life, we never face it alone. You are for us. You are with us, and you are in us. You have given us everything we need for life and for godliness. You have provided us with your very own life, your very own gifts, your very own presence. You have provided everything, Father. Help us to believe in your goodness. Help us to look beyond our circumstances and to see the truth of who you are and who you are in us. That you have finished the work. We don't do anything to make ourselves right with you. We simply receive the robe of righteousness. And because of that righteousness, we have the right to rule and reign in life and to overcome in every situation. And Father, I thank you for your word and your truth. In Jesus' name, amen.